Today on the podcast, we had Paulina Maranova Pompliano. I moved around a lot as a child, and I can relate to Paulina's transition moving from Bulgaria to the U.S. Her life has been dramatically shaped by this, which not only spoke to me personally, but I know will speak to many of you in the audience. We talked about the power of the immigrant experience to strengthen a person's sense of resolve, especially in America. Paulina has kept this tenacity and passion throughout her career, culminating in the very brave move of leaving a steady job at Fortune magazine to launch The Profile, her own newsletter. Paulina symbolizes what the future of media can be, a people-driven business where individuals can become their own trusted brands. People increasingly trust other people more than they trust media brands, and Paulina has developed an exceptional level of trust with her audience. I look forward to seeing Paulina's star burn even brighter as we turn the page to a new world of media. So Paulina really embodies this new wave of media that's coming through right now. She's risk-taking, she's genuine, uh, and incredibly insightful. This was my very first podcast recording, so I was pretty apprehensive going into it. It felt like it was the world's most important episode, uh, but within minutes of meeting her and getting on the podcast to start recording, we created a really natural, easy conversation. So it's really no wonder to me that so many big names have said yes to interviews with her. Rich with stories, we meandered through Polina's experience coming to America as a Bulgarian immigrant, and there's some pretty funny stories there to tell. Her motivation to take the plunge and leave Fortune and become a full-time independent creator at The Profile, as well as what she's working on next. Polina left one question top of mind for me, uh, and really for any other budding creator, and that's if not now, then when? So I really hope you enjoy this episode. Oh, so good. (laughs) It's getting that time of the year when we got to watch like Love Actually, you know, I think it's like a yearly ritual. Look at my Starbucks cup. Oh, (laughs) oh, yes. I can't believe it's, yeah, we can't start calling it Christmas at this stage. It's crazy. Like you walk in and they already had everything decorated. It was green and red. I was like, oh my God, it's still November 6th. Isn't that just insane? I mean, it feels like it's only just been Halloween. You can't start gearing up for Christmas. I know, I know. Anyway, I'm, I'm all right. Yeah, I saw um, I saw your I saw your tweet about your husband um, watching Bachelorette <laughs> last night, which I thought was hilarious. Oh my god, it was so like good. A, <laughs> yeah. yeah, he was like, "Oh, that guy!" Like, I'm I'm betting on that guy. I was like, "I'm not <laughs> betting." There's <like> one guy. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, I feel like I've been, I've been missing out on the Bachelorette. I haven't I haven't ever seen it. I think I saw like, or am I not missing out? Like, maybe it's good. For, for my life, yeah. to not have it in my life, or maybe it isn't. It's, it's very good not to have it. So I started watching it. So the fact that this show, I was literally 11 years old when it started, oh, wow. I think, or 10. Like, oh, it's been going on for a while. The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, like that franchise. And then I started watching it when I was in college. And then I, like, had to stop because I was getting too invested in people's lives. <laughs> oh, <you get> so <laughs> like, invested. Googling that. It was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the second second season of Love Island in the UK. I was just oh. completely encapsulated by it. Like, I, I was watching, seen I was, I was following like three of the main stars, like <laughs> figuring out what was going on behind the scenes. It's terrible rabbit holes. <laughs> oh, they seriously are. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So, are you guys ready? Yeah. Should we get started? Yep. yep. Let's do it. All right. Cool. Um, well, maybe I'll give you a quick intro. And then okay. we can just jump in. Um, cool. So 
<laughs> we're joined by Polina. And uh, Polina is definitely one of the kind of most nuanced profile writers I've ever read. Um, you know, you've written for Fortune previously, um, and, you know, you've spoken with some pretty up there stars, you know, household names. Uh, what, two weeks ago, you were speaking with Humans of New York guy, um, you spoke with secret billionaires, you spoke with students who are doing some pretty cool stuff, uh, tech uh, entrepreneurs. So, you know, you've got a pretty good sense of how to get to the core of someone's personality. Um, I'm kind of worried that this might turn into a bit of a <laughs> group therapy session for Anthony and I. <laughs> I love it. Let's go that route. We're, the, we're, we're, we're taking on the role of interviewer this time, but I think it might flip the script. I'm happy to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you know, what we're trying to hit at, um, obviously on this new series that we're releasing is, um, you know, periods of transition. So we want to understand kind of journeys, what brought someone to a big period of transition and where they're kind of going next after that. So obviously at the beginning of COVID, you jumped off the corporate bandwagon and, and decided to go it alone with the, the profile, right? I mean, I, I personally would presume that that's kind of one of your biggest times of transition. And if so, like, should we talk about that or is, is there something else? Let's start with that. Um, so I actually recently remembered that one of my, um, one of my first stories for Fortune was, it was such a fun article, but I got so many like uh, readings against my will. So basically it was, um, million dollar psychics and it was psychics that were used by these big corporations like google and apple had like consultant psychics that they paid a ton of money to every That's month amazing. Wow. and they called them some of them called them like intuitives and numerologists and things like that but they were psychics ultimately and uh one of them in a reading i did not ask for uh one of them was <laughs> like well um yeah, I don't see you. I don't see you being a corporate gal. And I was like, I don't know what that means. Cause I just got my job at fortune. I was on top of the world. And she's like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I see you starting something of your own. Like, I don't see you being in a corporate America forever. And I was like, and I literally called my mom and I was like, um, that's, she's definitely wrong. Cause I love this so much. I, I never see myself leaving or starting anything else. And now it's funny that <laughs> I should call that intuitive back. Um, but, <laughs> but it's cool because yeah my my last day at fortune was march 20th which was the first day of um the lockdown in new york city for covid so at the time things were so uncertain that i didn't even bother planning anything i just said i'm excited to do this let's see if it works if all goes to hell i'm gonna just find another job but right now not only is nothing certain in my world but nothing is certain in corporate america either like they may have to um have layoffs advertising revenue was drying up like you never know what's gonna happen um so for me yes it was a big transition but it was a transition where i was really excited about yeah could, could you walk through the like the, the final day because i feel like there's like a lot of drama in your last day to job like i i left facebook in 2018 and i i described it like uh, like the Odyssey, I felt like Odysseus, where like some people I talked to were so happy, like, oh, dude, I'm so happy for you, that's so great. Some people I talked to were really sad. Like, they're like, what are you doing? Like, this is such a bad idea. Some people told me, hey man, like, are you sure you wanna do this? I don't know if this is a good idea. So I had this mixture of emotions where sometimes people were pumping me up, I felt really good. Sometimes people were telling me, I don't know if that's a good idea, man. And, and to me, by the end, it was like an emotional Odyssey. And 
was it similar for you? Was the last day, was everybody cheering you on? Do you have people saying, Paulina, I don't know. Maybe that psychic called you and said, hey, like what's going on? So um, you call it uh, like the odyssey. I call it the seesaw of misery. It was like, <laughs> I would wake up in the morning and be like, I'm ready to do this. I'm going to leave. I'm going to do the profile full time. And then I would go to sleep and be like, are you crazy? Like, this is not the time. There might be a recession, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, but it's really soothing for the brain once you actually make a decision and your brain's like, okay, whatever, whatever that decision is, like it can relax a little bit. I was totally fine. So I was totally fine until, so my, my last week was weird because my last day was March 20th, but that whole week we worked from home because all the offices said work from home because uh, of COVID and nobody knew what was going on. So the, my, my last uh, Friday in the office was the previous Friday and which was Friday the 13th. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> what a weird theme we've got. Yeah. Yeah. With the Aurora um, Borealis background here. The yeah, you, see, <laughs> you see like a crystal ball behind yeah. me. Uh, so that Friday, I was, I, was, I was cool as a cucumber because I had told everybody I was fine. It was kind of weird because um, the last day in the office, I, I couldn't like hug anybody goodbye because of COVID and like things were really strange. And some people weren't even in the office that day. Um, mm -hmm. But the majority of people were really supportive. Uh, I, that was, I was really lucky and thankful for that. Um, but when, <laughs> so... Okay, so I walked, it was like a dreary day. I remember it was like not a great, it was cold. Um, I got on the subway to come uh, to my apartment and on the subway, I just like, I had this like panic. Like I had my, my bags with all the stuff that I had packed from Fortune yeah. and I was looking around the subway car and I was like, do these people not know what's going on? I mean, this is like, <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. Cause we, to me, the whole world was like, I, you know, had, made this big step and they were just like going on with their lives um <laughs> so i was just like internally panicking like did i just make the biggest mistake of my life i got off the subway immediately called my mom and i was like i started like crying and she's like are you serious right now like you wanted to do this it was a lot of tough love but it was good um and then i pulled it together and then i had my last week working remotely but it was it's when something is the right thing you will have that moment of panic but then once you're like, oh my God, I get to do this other thing. You're so excited about it. You don't have time for regret or sadness or like thinking about dwelling on the past. Yeah. Were, you, were you the only person at the time from kind of your teams in Fortune to make this plunge? Or did you decide, you know, was it, was it kind of a group decision of different people were thinking this is a pretty interesting time to do their own thing now? No, uh, <laughs> I don't think anybody, <laughs> I don't think anybody else at Fortune had a, a newsletter that they left their job for. Um, but I mean, I had seen my various coworkers leave to go freelance or to join other companies. I knew it happened. It's just to me, I'm like such a loyal person to the point where it's kind of dangerous. Like with with a job, like it's good to be loyal to people, but I was loyal to my job. I was like, these yeah. people gave me a chance when nobody else, you know, it like yeah. you, you devolve into this thing. And while at Fortune, I genuinely, genuinely really liked my job. Um, it's just that when, the, my decision was more around, 
if I don't do this at 28 years old, I'm never going to do this. So like, right. let, let, let me just do it. Even if I fall flat on my face, at least I did it. I scratched that itch. Like, it's fine. I'll go get another job. But, um, so when I left, I had all these things prepared. I was like, I will freelance here. I will, like, I had a checklist of things I would do if this didn't work out. Uh, but luckily it has. So I, I continue to focus hundred percent on the profile. I, I think like you're part of this, wave of new media of like Substack newsletters, creators, amazing podcasters, things like that, where <laughs> it, it, maybe it seemed less obvious back then, but, and also it might not be obvious now, you know, I think we kind of, we all live in our own little bubbles where to most people, this still seems like, you mean, you're writing a newsletter as like a full-time job. That's, that's definitely not mainstream opinion around the world, but I think all of us on this call, and especially you, Pauline, of course, you're really trying to capture what is this new sort of creator economy of like, what does it mean to write media in 2020? And it doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. mean, let me go join the New York Times, let me go join a big publication. Did you see that coming? Was that like part of like the wave you're trying to latch onto? Or do you think um, it's something that it's still kind of a fringe opinion to, to think that someone can make their living from a newsletter? Um. So I didn't, I, I kind of fell into it. Like I didn't see it coming, see like, oh, there, there's the trend. Because yeah. uh, when I left, there weren't, I, I didn't know of any really big reporters at really traditional publications who had left to just do subsec. After I left, there was Alex Gantrowitz, the guy from The Verge, like all these people. But it wasn't the case when I was making my decision. Um, my thesis from working at places like CNN, USA Today, Fortune, a media startup, Aussie, what I saw over the years is the deterioration of trust with the reader. People, regular people, do, um, they trust other people. They are starting the, the trust between, there's been studies done on this, uh, the trust between people and institutions is eroding. And I think that people are much happier to give money to you, Anthony, or you, Ben, individually, because they trust you and they trust your work versus this big institution that they don't know how they're handling their money, where it's going, et cetera. Um, so I think I saw that and I believe that. So I was like, if that's true, and I also have a, a little bit of a, a unique advantage in that at Fortune, I was writing a newsletter, right? So every single day I wrote a daily newsletter I saw the trust that people had, the things that they were willing to tell me, the community that I was building. And I was like, I'm one person. If I can do that, I'm sure, I'm sure this is kind of the, the future of this. That's, that's fascinating because I, I feel like, like my, my parents, for example, they trust the institutions. But to me, it's like, I, I roll my eyes when I hear my dad quote the newspaper, but for him, that's, <laughs> that's his life, right? That's what he does. He reads it every day. It's like he's doing it for 60 years. Yeah, it's as, as somebody who, I mean, I started writing for the newspaper in high school, then in college, then after college, I, I love journalism, but I'm very much a purist in that I believe in ethics and objectivity and, uh, you know, presenting all sides of the story. And, but a lot of times now, it's just, it seems really hard to distinguish between real heavy serious journalism and activism so it's yeah. the, the lines are blurring more and i don't know if that's a trend that's going to continue or if people kind of like shift back and forth yeah i think one of, one of the main things that i see as being kind of against this trend of going solo is that the cost it takes to do fact checking 
So mm. it seems that, you know, particularly if you're reporting on the news, um, you know, we're still going to be pretty reliant on big institutions to be able to get on the ground and check the facts for certain things. So it, I, I completely, you know, see what it goes to, I mean, I see the trend to kind of towards going solo. But there's also definitely some limitations on it. And I'm wondering, you know, what kind of limitations have you found since going solo on your ability to produce and access great people? So absolutely. First of all, you have the name brand, right? It's a little bit different when you get an email coming from Fortune versus the profile. But if you've worked in those places and you've built a reputation, people are probably more likely to take your call or answer your email. Two, fact checking, yes. But actually, if you look, so many publications have cut their fact checkers. There yeah. is not. When I write an article, so it does not go to a fact. Yeah, it is sad yeah. because that's the thing that you should, should be investing the most money in. When I write an article and most institutions, I won't say all media publications, it does not go to a fact checker and then get published. Now, at Fortune for the magazine, oh, it was a really rigorous uh, fact checking process as right. it should be. Um, but I think as more and more people write online, et cetera, that is going away unfortunately. But I think places like um, platforms like uh, Substack, I think they're smart enough to see, hey, this individual creator, their biggest strength is writing. Let's give them the resources necessary to strengthen that. So whether that's providing an editing team that you can send your article to and they mm. can edit it, yeah, a fact checker, legal support, that's really important when you're a solo creator, um, health insurance, benefits, all this stuff that you never had to think about when you were at a media publication and the reason a lot of people still stay. Um, but I think if you can identify a strength, which for me is writing, I would love to have all that support, but it doesn't matter if I'm getting it at Fortune, The New York Times or Substack. Yeah, I, I love that idea of the, the health insurance piece as well is pretty uh, pertinent to me because I think that's one of the things, particularly if, you know, if you've got a family and mm -hmm. or, you, know, you can't afford to pay for these things on your own, you're, particularly in like corporate America, right, where it's all very dependent on having an employer. Do you think it's a bit of a privilege to be able to go solo? Uh, so um, here's the thing. <laughs> um, I made sure that I had savings like I, I saved a lot of money before I did this I also did the math and backed into how much uh, how many paying members for the profile do I need to match my salary I'm sure if I had two kids and I was a single mom I probably would not do it so yes there is some privilege there but I also think that when I was making this decision I literally made a pro and con list and on the con list were things like health insurance that's not the best reason to stay at a job that maybe you yeah. hate, or maybe like you're going to end up being 55 and be like, damn, what if I had left when I was 28 and done something else? Health insurance, big, it was a big factor for me. I um, found another way that there are other ways that help um, individual creators do that. And, and they're subsidized options. There's all sorts of stuff. It's just doing the research ahead of time. And I think a lot of people are just comfortable if you're, at a job like that and you're like, mm, I get my paycheck, I get benefit. Like I, I watched an interview with um, Tyler Perry and he said that he, he kept experimenting and trying all this, these things when he was uh, young and his mom was like, yeah, but like you gotta get a job with benefits. And he was like, to her, <laughs> benefits were like, you made it. And to me, really? I come from kind of a similar um, 
like thinking because my parents moved here as immigrants who were chemical engineers in Bulgaria. Here, my dad was working at Popeyes and Marriott. Like it, it was um, like to me, a full-time job in corporate America was like, I've made it. Yeah. Well, that's that, so interesting. That's that interesting because it's also, that must've been another big transition in your life, right? Your parents moving from you from bulgaria to the u.s like could you could you walk us through that and like the impact that's had on i mean that's one example but i'm sure it's impacted your worldview really yeah so i think that that, that was actually the biggest transition that uh shaped my mindset not in a great way for a long time so when i was in bulgaria i um did first grade and a, a little bit of second grade because they pulled me out in april uh to move here and start the year here in August. Yeah. Where, where in the US so, did you move to? Atlanta, Georgia. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, not in the best neighborhood. because <laughs> So basically when you move here, you don't know anybody and you don't know where to live. So the place where you live is where all the other Bulgarians live, which yeah. is like, you know, it, yeah. So <laughs> so when, when I was in Bulgaria, I was eight years old. Up to that point, I would say I was like a, a confident kid like kind of on the line of like arrogant like I, I was I was solid I had friends I was social I was extremely extroverted yeah. and then we moved here and uh it was it was just strange it was like um I don't know everything was different so even like the, the food tasted different the pe I didn't understand the language it was like a whole new world um because to me Every time somebody said America, I pictured Disney World. Like to me, it was like, I want to meet Mickey. Yeah. <laughs> and okay, so yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. But I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, anywhere you are, you're like Disney World. But um, the like seeing, first of all, I recognized how much my parents were working. Um, I recognized that, you know, there was an adjustment period, but I never felt like I lacked things, right? I think a lot of times people are like, oh, it's really hard. We didn't have this, we didn't have that. I felt, I felt like taken care of, but the cultural differences, and I've written about this before, were hilarious because you take a kid from Bulgaria who up until then, like every time we ate, we went out to a restaurant to eat pizza, pizza was eaten with like a fork and a knife. Yeah. Here, it is not. So when you're... <laughs> so when you're a kid in elementary school, of course, like, you're going to get made fun of for that. But like, you don't, like, you just don't comprehend. It, it, was, it was a lot of stuff. So wow. that okay. experience... Just, oh, go ahead. Do you speak English when you came over? No. No, okay. Wow. Right. That's awesome. So you're eating with a knife and fork. You can't speak English. <laughs> Literally, somebody yeah. told me what I'm doing wrong, yeah. and I cannot understand them. Um, but um, the, the one thing that I remember very clearly, so I, they had me take some tests here. Um, it was one in English and writing and one in math, so they could place me somewhere, because I came kind of at a weird time. Uh, I was A, but my birthday was in August. I don't know how they did the math. Uh, I completely left the, the writing and whatever uh, test blank because I didn't understand anything. But the math test, I aced because in Bulgaria in second grade, we were solving for X. Here, they were still doing two plus three. And I was like, oh, <laughs> this is my dream. Oh my God. In Bulgaria, I was failing math. Um, it, was, it was like a traumatic experience in my life. And then I came here and I was like, oh, I, I got this, guys. But um, they, they, and so I, 
I didn't finish second grade in Bulgaria, but in Georgia, they put me at fourth. So already I was like young, I didn't speak English, I ate uh, pizza with a fork and a knife. But the first day of school, my dad walked me to the classroom and we were already late because my dad's always late to everything. So I was, I was with him and I'm already nervous and freaking out. And I'm at the door of the classroom. And um, so you know how in, in American classrooms, they typically hang the flag over the door of the front door of the classroom. So when we started walking in, all the students were like standing up and saying something like chanting. And I was like, <laughs> what is happening here? And I asked my dad. And I asked my dad and he didn't want to freak me out more. And he also didn't know what they were doing. So he was like, um, that is how they welcome new students in America. And I was like, that is the <laughs> kindest thing I've ever <laughs> That's amazing. I did not know what the Pledge of Allegiance was. So, um, so they were all pointing at me, I thought, and, and I was like, thank you, thank you. Oh, I feel honored. The next day they did it again. And then I was like, uh-oh, <laughs> I thought there was a new student. I didn't Welcome know again. Name. Yeah, this thing, this welcoming goes on for years. <laughs> Literally, it took me, it took me a while to figure it out, and then I was so mad at my dad. He was like, "What? I didn't want to freak you out." I was like, "Oh God! Like, <laughs> why couldn't you just?" <laughs> yeah, but that I mean, little things like that they make you. For me, the whole experience—not speaking English, not having friends, not being able to be extroverted—it made me much more introverted and shy for a very long period of time. Did it? Did it? fuel a sort of personal fire as well. I feel like the, the sort of, mm. I don't the stereotype, the model for like someone that comes to a new country is that they have this fire, they have this like chip on their shoulder, this desire to prove like they, they don't take for granted what maybe a lot of Americans do about the quality of life Americans have. Is that, is that characteristic of what you feel too? Or? Yes. So two things here. <laughs> one, um, I listened to Michelle Obama's new podcast and in one of the episodes, she's talking to Barack and <laughs> first name basis, Barack. Um, and she says, she says that her family wasn't, they were like lower middle class, but she said that to her, uh, having made it meant having stairs in your home. <laughs> like to, to me, it was like not living in an apartment or stuff like that. So when my parents got a house, I was like, whoa, you know, like a whole new yeah. world. But, um, but yes, that, I think that fire in me manifested in every single thing I've done in my life. The reason I've become good at it uh, is because of an insecurity. So I, I couldn't write and I couldn't express myself. I couldn't read. When I saw other kids writing and reading, it, it was like, I'm going to, I'm going to, like, I'm going to show you I can do this too. And I over-rotated so much that I got better at that, at it than them. <laughs> and that's super interesting. I mean, so because you, you basically had to decipher a whole new culture at a pretty young age. Do you think that's kind of the basis inspiration behind why you now write about the depths of people's personality? Okay, so I thought about this a little bit. I don't know if this has anything to do with it. It's just how I think about it. Yeah. Um, when I first moved, uh, I, because I couldn't understand the language, I had to pay a lot of attention to body language and people's like moods and how they looked and whatever. Um, so I, I spent a lot of time observing people uh, yeah. when I couldn't communicate. So I think that that probably had something to do with it, but I also just seeing kind of my path and my friend's paths and people who aren't from this country and how 
they've gotten to where they have gotten and the, the reason they have the views they have. I've always grown up with this nuance that the world isn't black and white and, and it infuriates me when people try to make it black and white. Like, I, I, I know so many people that believe different things based on their experiences. Um, so I, like, that interests me and I, I always, I just love like delving into people's motivations. Yeah. I feel like you can live different realities by having like experiences in different countries. Like some people, I remember when I, um, I moved from New York to London a few years ago and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of my, I started going to Dubai a lot for work and a lot of my American friends, I tell them, yes, I'm going to Dubai. And some of my <laughs> American friends who are well-educated, you know, professionals would be like, oh, well, isn't that like a horrible place for me to be as a woman? Like, that sounds oh. crazy. That's so dark. But I had some friends, like I was working with in Dubai who were like British, who were female, who've been living there for the last 20 years. And, you know, there's a lot more nuance than just like, evil foreign land and everything's amazing in america and i think it's like entirely different conceptions of reality and that yes. comes from being in a different place and i feel like if you've lived in another country if you experience other countries but living is very important i think there's a huge difference between oh i went to uh thailand for two weeks for a full moon party i'm so That's in touch true. with asia versus versus right. having lived there it it changes what like your sense of reality is in my opinion Yes, and I think that because I have the experience of being an immigrant growing up in Georgia, going to the University of Georgia, and now living in New York City, the reason this political situation has been so difficult for me is because I see so many different sides and I cannot, my brain cannot compute that if you are this type of person, you will vote this way. And like, it's not like that at all. There's so much nuance. And the yeah. only way you realize that is people's different experiences. Where, where are they from? What have they seen? If you're coming from a really oppressive government in Venezuela, yeah. the United States is probably a haven to you. If you've grown up here, if you've never traveled, this is the only thing you know. Um, so it like, I don't know, the, the, that's, the, the way I pick profiles to include in the newsletter is the ones that offer that little bit of context and nuance and perspective versus the very linear, I know exactly what this type of person is gonna say because this is what the type of person they are. I love that. I saw an amazing tweet uh, a couple of days ago. It was, it was basically, one well, actually, no, it was yesterday. And um, obviously they're counting for the presidential election right now, all the votes. And someone was complaining that it was two days after um, but someone who's grown up in Russia said, well, with us, they count two days before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was just spectacular. And it was such a great observation. It's so interesting. Like, for example, my, my dad, when we were in Bulgaria, he was working at the Ministry of Finance, which was a very prestigious job at the time. And um, he was making good money. And then one day inflation hit and he was making 30 cents a month. So he stopped going to work, obviously. Um, a lot of other people didn't. They were like, I'm going to lose my job if I stop going to work. Like, what, what's going to happen? He stopped. We, when we won the green card, because we won it in a green card lottery, totally random. Um, when he won that, to him, the United States was this place where he could work at Popeye's frying chicken and washing dishes, but he was making more money than he was at the Ministry of Finance. To him, the United States is a totally different place than it is to you, to me, to somebody else who was born here. Um, so that's why it's funny to me to see all these debates and it's like, yeah. you, you can't put people in these boxes. 
Yeah, it's super interesting. I mean, between the pandemic and populism, the future may not look quite as bright for immigrants looking to kind of do something over here um, as it maybe did when you moved over here. Do you think there's still kind of opportunity for folks to kind of go it alone with a completely non-traditional background? Is there opportunity? Absolutely. I think, I mean, so as long as there are paths to citizenship in the United States, as long as there are things like, uh, I think it's called the diversity lottery, the one I, the, the one we came on, because a lot of times people say, oh, make it merit-based, that's fine, except when you find out that a lot of these countries are super corrupt and the only people who can take the test are the mm -hmm. diplomats' sons and the politicians' uh, daughters. The diversity lottery is great because it's totally random. And then, yes, it's a long process. It's, it's a year, like you have to go through the embassy and interviewed and all this stuff. But you can be living in a village in Bulgaria and still make it over here. That lottery is still going on, as far as I know. Um, I actually think that it's a lot of previous presidencies actually like, you know, every single one there there has always been debate around immigration and undocumented uh immigrants and legal immigrants and citizens and all this stuff but i think america's biggest strength is that the fact that everybody can come here and and create a life and go from popeyes to owning his own business i still believe in that but i just i i think that um a lot of that conversation is being lost because of the way people are um I mean, how many times did immigration come up in this uh, political cycle? I was paying attention, didn't hear it once, except there was one question at the last debate about it. COVID dominated everything, as it should. But I just, I think that it's so easy to forget about these things um, if you're not paying attention to it on a daily basis or it's not in your face. I, do you agree? Have you been to Bulgaria recently? Like, do you still feel like a, a culture, a strong cultural attachment to the country? Do you go all the time or, or what is that? Yeah, I go pretty often, uh, like once a year. I still, I mean, my whole family, except my parents, uh, are there. So my grandparents, I still have a great grandmother who is 90, 91. Nice. Uh, I call her every Saturday. <laughs> but when I go there, um, I mean, yeah, I, I just, there's so many there's so many people still there. And I just love, like, I, I wrote a post about my grandmother's neighbor, Yvonne, and he has sheep and he just like loves his work. He like lives on kind of a, a farm type thing. Um, and the, what I got from him is he is no less happy than me or like the most successful person in America, which is why it makes me so mad every so often, like on Twitter, somebody will say like, well, um, you know, someone in rural Afghanistan, a woman in rural Afghanistan will never uh, be as successful as like a white man in corporate America. And I'm like, you are you're not defining success right. If you ask my great grandmother, who's 91, if she's happy or whether she would rather have this like businessman's life in America, she would tell you 100% hers because she loves it and she's happy and she doesn't like we define success in the wrong terms, like success is super personal. I think it was Lily Tomlin once said, um, even if you win the rat race, you're still a rat. So who cares? Like if you yeah. won. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I try to think about it like that. Yeah. I mean, I it sounds like, so talking about the theme of transitions, right? 
big transition was obviously quitting a very nice, awesome, comfortable job, start the profile. Another transition was moving from Bulgaria to the U.S. and that seems to have shaped your life until now and probably will for the rest of your life. Is, are those the two biggest moments in your life? And it sounds like there was another one maybe moving to New York from Atlanta. Was mm -hmm. that a big transition as well? That was a big like identity crisis transition. Oh, really? Because, uh, yeah. yeah. So, okay. So when I was in college, um, majored in journalism, was the editor of the college paper. I had interviewed at C or interviewed, interned at CNN years today. So I had a massive ego. I thought like I could work anywhere I wanted. And the professors uh, who I was close to at the University of Georgia kind of fueled that ego a little bit. They were like, oh, you've done so much. You'll have no problem getting a job. And then I had a big problem getting a job. <laughs> Um, so in 2013, like people, um, you know, media is always in cycles. So at the time, like there weren't a ton of reporting jobs. Everybody was now putting their money into social media and hiring for social media. But when I was applying, um, so let's say I graduated um, May or yeah, May of 2013, I was like, okay, so in, like literally immediately started applying to jobs. And I was pretty confident I would get one. Meanwhile, the days passed, the weeks passed, the months passed, and I'm still like living at home on my mom's couch. And I'm like, okay, what am I doing wrong? Like I did every single thing right in college. I, I didn't go study abroad so I could go do an internship. Like I didn't do this one experience so I could um, stay and work uh, during the summer so I could have money. Like what are the what did where did i go wrong that i cannot now get a full-time job like i to me i was the perfect candidate but <laughs> it's obviously not how the world works um and i remember uh crying to my mom i, I feel like i always call my mom when i'm crying but this is yeah a different time and i was like I just don't under, cause, cause I was getting desperate. I was applying to jobs that I didn't even know what I was doing applying to. Um, I didn't have the skill set. It was totally out of my thing, but I, I just did. And my mom was like, we moved to this country and me and your dad had jobs so you could have a career. So don't just settle for a job when you could wait a little bit longer, live at home and then find one. And that sounds nice and it's great. Um, but when, when you're in it, I was just like, to me, success equaled a job. My friends were working at these cool offices and like the problem when you graduate college without a job is that what nobody tells you at least told me is that I was the type of person who would wrap my entire identity around something external. So in college, I was always a student and I prided myself on being the editor of the college paper because yeah. on a campus of 30,000 people, you're hot shit, but outside of it, nobody knows who you are. <laughs> so, so when I graduated, I wasn't a student anymore. That's not a, an identity that I could have. I was not an editor. I was not a journalist. I was not an intern. I, I had no label and I was just desperately trying to cling to anything so I could, I could wrap my identity around it. And, um, uh, oh yeah, well, so, <laughs> so that happened and I just kind of felt lost. And all of a sudden I was like, I asked myself, what, what would be where would I love to live? And at the time I was watching um, How I Met Your Mother and I thought New York was the coolest. And so I, <laughs> I was like, I wanna go to New York. There's a lot of media there. Um, I had 
asked my old bosses at USA Today and CNN if they would let me at least like freelance for them um, during the holidays so I could make a little bit of money. I did that. Um, and meanwhile, kept applying to jobs. Didn't get a job until March of 2014. So that means pretty much a whole year. That's I determination. You know, that's, that's <laughs> great. Yeah. <laughs> you should see my spreadsheet of like projections. <laughs> thousands yeah. of jobs, yeah. Oh, man. And um, fun fact, I won't say which newsletter, but it was an early one. Uh, I applied to work at in 2014. And uh, they were wonderful about it uh, because when they when I was like, hey, guys, just following up. <laughs> and they were like, um, you don't have enough newsletter experience, which I read that email today. And yeah. I'm like, oh, my God, we've really gone a full. You should, you should frame that, throw it as like a dartboard, yeah. like, you know, they, they're missing you. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> That's so interesting that you, you still go back to that. Yeah, I, I wanted to remember that because in the early days, it's so hard. Like um, when I finally got a job and moved to uh, New York to work at Aussie, which was the media startup, it was um, because I, I, I came in with fresh eyes. I didn't know what I should have known, which is it costs a lot of money to live in New York. Um, but in my head, I was like, there's a whole lot of people I see like on the streets walking. They all have somewhere to live. They somehow like pay their rent. Um, so that mentality, more than half of my uh, paycheck went to rent. And then I created a budget that only allowed for me to spend $103 a week. <laughs> Um, which sounds like a lot until you take a, a cab ride for a few blocks and it's like $25 yeah. and you're like, oh shoot, haven't even bought groceries yet. Um, but that kind of discipline just taught me a lot and thank God I went through that because I'm so careful with money and I appreciate it so much that if I didn't have that experience, I don't know if I'd have the same view on it. What, what was Aussie? Like, was, was 2013, 2014, I'm just trying to think, like, was that peak BuzzFeed time where, like, all these, like, hot media startups, like, and was Aussie in that same sort of space? Aussie's still around. It is, okay. um, it's venture-backed. Uh, it actually shares an investor with Business Insider, um, Axel Springer, which is a German um, company. When I was there, they had only been, I think, a year in existence, and they were going through a fundraising round. So it was, they, like, it was so serendipitous for me to later cover venture capital and startups for me to see that from the inside. Um, but it was, it was a great place to work. Like, there were super smart people, as with any startup. Um, they came together. They put out great work and great journalism. And the problem was I wasn't really a writer. I was doing social media and marketing. But I'm glad I did that so I could kind of, oh, and one one um tidbit from that my boss at the time i was asking her all sorts of basic things i didn't know how to use excel like i was um i was like what's a what's a startup like why are they raising money like i thought like, what does that mean magical thing, i didn't know yeah. <laughs> yeah and so she explained everything she was like if you want to actually learn more you should sign up for this newsletter at the time market snacks uh, which now i'm like friends with the guys who started it but she's like sign up for that newsletter it's good also i would recommend term sheet but that's like a little bit too advanced for you at the moment so maybe don't do that and i ended up writing it much later yeah. but i didn't understand <laughs> i didn't so understand weird. it's this so like crazy. poetic justice right here. You know? <laughs> it's i love these cycles of kind of things that are ahead of you that someone tells you you can't do and then you go on to achieve and probably do better than what's you're now writing for the profile or own like ceo founder of the profile 
what's kind of the next big thing on your horizon? You know, is, is it growing the profile? Are there other things you're thinking about right now? So I've been thinking more about like, for a long time, I've been giving people profiles to read, right? So I've been curating it. I've been saying, here are some profiles you can read. Here's dossiers, like from individual people. My next step in my thinking is like, how can I actually take these things and turn it into something practical instead of just guiding people to it? Like, like here, here's how you can apply this in your life. So I've been thinking about maybe a course or some sort of like profile school you can go to and learn from I really like people. that idea. Yeah, good. Okay, good. This is great. And, and you've, been, you've been tweeting similar kinds of things, right? It's, uh... Yeah, so I'm testing it. That, that's the one thing. Um, Lin-Manuel Miranda said this when he was writing. It took him 10 years to write Hamilton, but in the process, he was constantly testing his work. Uh, his test involved performing one of his songs for Barack Obama in the White House, but he still, he was like, if it doesn't work in front of this audience, it's never going to work and I'm going to stop. But you gotta test it along the way, otherwise, like uh, it's too big of a thing to do, and then have it flop. Yeah, <laughs> right. And 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 what what kind of guests have you? You know, obviously, you've spoken to some pretty amazing people. Um, have you found that it's kind of easy for you to source interesting guests constantly, being on the outside of somewhere like Fortune? It's definitely harder. It's definitely harder because people don't automatically open your email. I think I took it a little bit for granted. Like, of course, they're going to open my email. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Um, Now it's a little bit harder, but I actually enjoy the challenge because you have to prove that, you know, you um, are deserving of that. Like with Brandon Stanton of Humans of New York, I can't find another interview that he's done with a traditional media organization just because he doesn't do that stuff. And for example, how um, Elon Musk, uh, let Tim Urban of Wait But Why, which is a blog, spend like a month with him and report on his company. So I think that actually not having a reputation is a little bit of an advantage. It's also, you know, a a little bit of a detriment if people aren't immediately. um, But like right now, I'm trying to to interview someone. I've like DM'd them on Twitter. I was like, oh, maybe they didn't get it because it's in their other (laughs) inbox. So like I (laughs) uh, emailed them. I'm going to try calling. Like it's a little bit of like a... Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so. you're basically managing it like a bit of a sales pipeline exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> is it is it and you're right now it's just one person right like do you plan to i, I mean this is an interesting thing right like if you start a newsletter today uh mm-hmm. and some of these like big journalists like let's say, like matt taibbi andrew sullivan etc are do you think their plans are to create to just just be that like like bill bishops and this isn't like just be it's just me doing this for the foreseeable future or do you look at it as like your first step to your own Paulina media empire or something? Mm. So, okay. <laughs> We're like predicting vision. the future here. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. We need to get one of Google's uh, folks in. Exactly. Um, we need an intuitive up in here. But I, so, okay. So there have been a number of newsletter writers that have like joined together to create bundles. I came from that world. I don't want to be bundled just yet. Like I want to build a reputation on my own, on the profile, on like this thing before I get bundled with other writers. For me, I think it's very important to know your strengths as well as your weaknesses. For me, I, um, when I was 
when I was at the University of Georgia and I was working at the student paper, I wanted to try, I wanted to like taste different things, right? So I was a reporter, I liked it, I was good at it. But then I started like trying to design the newspaper, like actually on InDesign design pages. They gave me the easiest pages to design and I still made it look like crap. And they're like, how did you do that? It's two columns and a picture. I was like, I don't know. Um, I would like do one column, then picture, then another column. It's not good for readability. I just don't have an eye for design. I, and, and then when I was the editor in chief or ed any editor, I was new, uh, assistant news editor, managing editor, whatever. Every time that I wasn't in charge of the work, um, and I had to edit somebody else's work. I just wasn't as good at it as some other people because one, like you need a lot of patience. You need to be constantly talking to the writer, having them, um, it's just a different way that the brain works. When I write, I think a certain way, when I edit, it's like really hard for me. So I don't know if necessarily, like I see myself hiring a bunch of other people and my, my job is to oversee or edit or do things like that because I don't, one, I don't enjoy it and two, I'm not sure I'm the best at it. So for now, I think it's going to just remain me, but then in the future, like for example, a fact checker or an editor for myself, like that would be helpful. Um, but we'll see. I don't know. I'm not yeah. there yet. I, see, I think it's interesting. You think about like ways to outsource different parts of the creative experience, right? Like I know like mm -hmm. some creators, like that's why they hire managers, right? To take care of like brand deals and to like do the design and stuff. And, um, it's, it sounds like you very aware of what you do and you don't want to do though. So that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do think that's interesting in the creative process. Like look at, again, somebody like Lin-Manuel Miranda, he wrote, edited, produced and starred in yeah. Hamilton. That is that's an insane. Yeah. yeah. That's a big deal, <laughs> but it's a lot of different like parts of your brain working. I don't even know how, but he was in complete creative control of everything. He could have outsourced it, et cetera. Um, but I just find that you can create something really, really amazing if you just challenge yourself to learn different things or try to do different things. There's definitely a difference between can you do it and do you want to do it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Amazing. So Kalina, who should, who should check out the profile? If you're curious. <laughs> If you enjoy um, learning about people and their nuance, that kind of person. Awesome. Amazing. It's been a very Thanks inspirational so story. Thank you, Paulina. Yeah. <laughs> Thank amazing. you, guys.